Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. And joining us on today's program, this time from the beginning of the show and not starting a couple of minutes in, it's our policy director, Michael Koplow. And just to give our listeners a little insight into the process of recording this show, this is actually the second time I'm saying this line because we went a couple of minutes in just now and I wasn't recording at all. So Michael, for the second time today, welcome to Israel Policy Pod. Thanks, Evan. And I guess I now have to make the same joke that I made that didn't get recorded like two minutes ago about how nice it is to be included in the entire podcast and and not just as an afterthought. And it's just as nice this time to not be an afterthought, something that everyone should aspire to. Speaking of high aspirations, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, has written this week a rather ambitious op-ed in the New York Post laying out probably the most favorable interpretation you can think of of the Trump administration's Israeli-Palestinian peace plan with a set of seven talking points. And this was specifically framed as a response to an op-ed in Foreign Policy magazine by Robert Malley and Philip Gordon. But more than that, it's a valuable insight into how the Trump administration, its spokespeople, and its defenders are thinking about the peace plan. Absolutely it is. And uh, we should note ahead of time that if you haven't yet, uh, you should read both my piece from Thursday and Evan's piece from uh, Wednesday, both of which dealt with Friedman's op-ed in in the New York Post and and touched on the arguments that he made. And I think that uh, the reason the the Friedman op-ed is such a valuable window into the Trump administration's thinking on this is because it really demonstrates the way they are trying to spin the Trump plan as a continuation of American policy and not as a radical break. And um, both, uh, as you'll see, both Evan and I uh, are very skeptical of of that sort of claim. Right. And it's worthwhile for the purposes of this podcast to speak about some of those talking points that the ambassador laid out in his op-ed because these are talking points that we've heard from the Trump administration before. These are talking points that inevitably we're going to hear again in the future, and they seem to consistently find a home with people who support things like West Bank annexation, which of course is now on the table with the coalition agreement in Israel that was greenlit by the Supreme Court this week, and the government is due to be sworn in next week. So Friedman starts off with this first point, pushing back against anyone who says that the annexation of the West Bank territory envisioned under the Trump plan jeopardizes Israel's future as a Jewish state, and then he goes on as a democratic state. Basis for it still being a Jewish state is because, well, Israel is annexing Jewish settlements in the West Bank, so all that you're doing by enacting this proposal is adding more Jewish Israelis to Israel's sovereign territory. And his point about democracy is that this is a plan that is approved of by the majority of Israelis and by Israel's democratically elected government. Now, on the surface, maybe this is something that will convince some people, but I think for both of us, this raised a couple of red flags. Yeah, for sure. So I think that on on the first point, the, the Jewish point, what Friedman writes is absolutely technically correct. The annexation of the Trump plan envisions because it's really incorporating Israeli Jews into the state and, and very few Palestinians isn't going to impact the demographic balance. 
The problem, of course, is that this assumes that this annexation will be limited to just the Trump vision and never go any further, or that the Palestinians who are left in the remainder of the West Bank are going to simply maintain their, their current desires to have their own state in uh, only 70% of the West Bank without real territorial contiguity. And if they decide that they're not willing to accept that and they want to be Israeli citizens as a result of this annexation, which Friedman describes as limited, but um, you know still involves 30% of the West Bank, then obviously Israel's future as a Jewish state uh, immediately uh, gets gets called into question. It is a little bit of a curious point to make, though, because he's talking about the people who are going to be brought into the state of Israel's sovereign territory, and the Jewish settlers in the West Bank are already Israeli citizens. Also, when you hear Trump officials and people who support them talking about the 30% of the West Bank or limited annexation, it's not just a clean 30%, like if you divided the West Bank you know, into thirds or something that is being added to Israel, the territory of the West Bank is going to be pockmarked by all these little enclaves of Israeli settlements because the ambition of the Trump plan is to allow Israel to annex every single settlement, regardless of its location or size, even if it's nestled right in the middle of an overwhelmingly Palestinian area, many miles away from the Green Line, that seems to be no object here. The democracy thing is also suspect. And you focused on this in your column, Michael. Yeah, I think the democracy aspect is, is more suspect than the than the Jewish aspect. And I think that that's primarily because uh, the authors of the Trump plan are more concerned with maintaining Israel as Jewish than they are with maintaining Israel as democratic. And Friedman is arguing, as you, as you said up front, Evan, that because a majority of Israelis and Israel's democratically elected government support the Trump plan, then it is ipso facto democratic. And um, that is that is an argument that is both simplistic and absurd because democracy is not simply about what a majority of people want. The reason that democracies have things like checks and balances and support for basic rights and constitutional guarantees is precisely because people recognize that it's not just about elections. It's not just about might makes right. It's not just about majority will. And the notion that because Israelis support something, it is inherently democratic, uh, is really just a, a strange argument to make and an incredibly weak one. And the, the question of whether the Trump plan allows Israel to remain democratic turns on a huge number of variables that will unfold after it's implemented and, and that are unknowable. And so I have to say it's, it's very emblematic of arguments that the president makes himself in all other contexts where he, he likes to go on Twitter and reiterate that because he was elected president, he has complete authority to do anything he likes. And while that may be the president's vision of democracy, it's not a vision of democracy that comports with uh, what democracy actually is. Right. I think there's also something here to be said that there's an assumption being made on the part of the ambassador and people pushing this point that if something is adopted by a majority or adopted democratically that it's automatically good as a value judgment. And we don't even have to go down the, the Godwin's Law hole of going to the worst possible example of this, but there are many, many examples in history, many, many countries, people can vote as a majority for something and it's not a good thing automatically just because a majority of people approved of it. 
it's sort of a very surface level argument. You kind of alluded to this, though, that the Trump team and people who are supporting annexation may be more concerned with keeping Israel as a Jewish state than as a democratic state. I mean, I read a very illuminating, I certainly didn't agree with it, but a very illuminating op-ed by Yishai Fleischer, the international spokesman of the Jewish settlement in Hebron, where he basically said, democracy is not our priority. And, you know, there's something to the candor there that's lacking in this Friedman piece, because it's easier to understand what's going on when the mask is off. For sure. And and I think this goes back to the earlier point that the Trump administration is taking great pains to try and fit the Trump plan into a box of previous American policy. And so it's important to them to say that it maintains Israel as Jewish and that it maintains Israel as democratic. And it's also important to them, if we get to this this next point uh, of Friedman's, to describe it as a two-state solution as opposed to describing it as something else. From an administration that really twisted itself into pretzels to not use the term two-state solution before the plan was released, it's really fascinating to see how they've now glommed onto the two-state solution and have almost adopted as their primary talking point that this is what an actual two-state solution looks like. On top of their initial reluctance to use the term two-state solution, a lot of the architects of the Trump plan, whether it was Friedman or Jared Kushner or Jason Greenblatt, who at the time was special envoy on this issue, no longer in the Trump administration, were really, really eager to say that they were going to do things differently. They weren't really clear about what different meant, but it was sort of this Trumpian rejection of the swamp, the rejection of the foreign policy professionals and the elites and the academics and and all these know-it-alls had screwed up and not done it right for 25, 30 years and they were going to be the ones to get it right because they were going to be different. And now to place this emphasis on establishing continuity between the Trump plan and previous administration's efforts is interesting. But as you mentioned, Michael, his next point is that this is a two-state solution and it really comes down to can you call something something if it's not that thing? You know, this is what the Trump administration is working so hard to do. And it's why, you know, they talk about the fact that sovereignty is amorphous and, and can mean different things to different people and, and changes over time. The the state for the Palestinians that is envisioned in the Trump plan is, is really not a state that is recognizable by any previous criteria, but they are taking great pains to describe it as a state so that they can they can sort of own this this two-state solution term. And I think that there's a good chance that part of the Trump plan will come into existence and be realized in the form of territorial annexation. I think it's very unlikely that the entirety of the Trump plan becomes realized um, either, either during the rest of the Trump term or uh, even, if, even if there's a second Trump term. But there's no question to me that the, the real lasting impact, aside from anything that gets annexed, of the Trump plan is going to be this new talking point that is going to live on for years, that this is what an actual two-state solution looks like, that the people who have been talking about two states for so long had an unrealistic vision of it, and that this is the actual realistic vision, and it's going to be this rhetorical effort to own the, the term two states, but really turn it on its head and uh, create, a, create a, a very different framework for what two states looks like. Right. And we've used this phraseology on the podcast before, but 
up until this point, the basic underpinnings of the two-state solution were the Clinton parameters. So now you'll have the Trump parameters and you can have Trump versus Clinton forever and ever and ever. I want to skip over Friedman's next point, which we can come back to, to get to his fifth point, because it kind of ties into what we were just talking about with the previous examples that Friedman talks about democracy, about Jewish state, about having a two-state solution. Friedman says that he's rebutting an argument that Palestinians are left with second-class status, and his basis for saying that Palestinians don't have a second-class status, that they're on an equal footing, is one, because they have a clear path to statehood, which we just talked about, and two, because they're going to receive a huge influx of economic investment that would allow them to live independently with peace, prosperity, and dignity. Friedman's words there. This is a very trademark Trump team thing to put the economic component on equal, if not greater, footing with the political component. And it also fits in with something that's popular on the Israeli right, and specifically with Netanyahu, this idea of economic peace. Yes, and it fits in with, as you say, the the Trump team's vision, but also the way they've approached this, where they released the economic component of the peace to prosperity plan before the political component of it. It's interesting um, because you would never hear somebody making this argument about Israelis or the history of Zionism. The idea that, uh, that, that what Jews really needed or wanted was prosperity and, and dignity and that economic investment uh, is, the, is the, the cure for everything um, and, and kind of stripping away the basic notion of nationalism. And, you know, he, he is clear here he, you know, that he, he says the vision gives Palestinians a clear path to statehood. He's not, he's not dropping that part of it. But, but what he really is focusing on, as you point out, is this notion of economic prosperity being what determines whether Palestinians have second class status or, or equal status. And um, it's a strange argument, but yes, it definitely fits in with the Trump vision. And, definitely fits in with a lot of the rhetoric on the Israeli right. Two things that stand out to me on this is, first of all, if the Israeli-Palestinian conflict were really just an economic problem, it would have been solved already. You wouldn't have people scratching their heads over this for decades and decades and decades saying, how do we get out of this if all that was needed was to throw a bunch of money at it? And speaking of throwing a bunch of money at it, if the idea is that Palestinians are only a class lower than Israelis because of their economic standing, then there's a big gap between who is a first class person in Israel and who is second class because the the income gap between Israel and the West Bank, something like uh, $40,000 a year in Israel and 1400 in the West Bank, and it's like $900 a year in Gaza. Uh, so that's a lot to bring Palestinians economically up to speed on the same level as Israelis, not to mention the political inequality there. Not only, not only that, the, one of the hallmarks of Trump administration policy so far has been the ending of all aid to the West Bank and Gaza. So the idea that it's prosperity and economic investment that conveys uh, equal status is in, in some ways even more incredible coming from the same folks who decided to cut off all aid to the Palestinians. And remember, this wasn't aid that was going to the Palestinian Authority. It was aid being spent 
directly by the United States or designated contractors of the United States to build basic infrastructure and, and public health and education facilities uh, in the West Bank and Gaza. So um, all the more so, all the more so, this is this is a this is a weird argument coming from the Trump folks. And even if you leave aside the Trump administration slashing all aid to the Palestinians, which is a really big thing to leave aside, and you look at the Trump plan in a vacuum, the economic component of the Trump plan calls for an investment of fifty billion dollars. But it's not fifty billion dollars for the Palestinians. Only twenty-eight billion are for the Palestinians, then the remaining $22 billion is for Jordan, Lebanon, and Egypt. The $28 billion that they give to the Palestinians, it's not $28 billion from the United States. If you read the Trump plan, it's like, well, this would be money that would be nice to give the Palestinians, but the Arab states should pay for it. It's the, we're going to build a wall and Mexico is going to pay for it. Now it's, we have a peace plan and the Arabs are going to pay for it. So it feels kind of insincere to put up this big case that it's just an economic problem. We just need to throw money at it, but not our money. But moving on to the next point that Friedman makes, he talks about this idea that the past 53 years of Arab-Israeli negotiations have operated on a basis where the United States gave the Palestinians a veto, and in Friedman's reading, that guaranteed stagnation and violence. Now, first of all, there's a big problem with this, that Israeli-Palestinian negotiations haven't been going on for 53 years. It's only really been the last two and a half decades. The second thing is, I don't think he's totally wrong that you don't want to give the Palestinians a veto on a resolution to the conflict, although in a way, both sides kind of have a veto on it, because unless you really force both sides together... Both will have to accept a proposal. But the overarching point here is that you don't really want to give political cover to either the Palestinians or the Israelis to just obstruct a mutually agreed upon solution. And all that the plan really seems to do is shift that power from the Palestinians, if they ever had it to begin with, and put it in the Israelis' hands. I agree with you 100%. This is, this is a point where I don't think that Friedman is, uh, is as you say, a completely wrong. I don't think he is. But the other the other point here is that once you've opened the door to a solution that is imposed from the outside and, and one that doesn't have to be agreed to by both sides, then you are giving cover in the future for anybody to do the same thing in ways that the Trump administration or the Israelis would not like. So it's very hard to argue that, well, the Palestinians don't have a veto, they, they, they shouldn't have to agree if they're being unreasonable. And so the Israelis can can do what they want and annex territory. Uh, it's very hard to argue that and then at the same time, turn around and make an argument against people saying, well, the Israelis shouldn't have a, a veto. And it's reasonable for Palestinians to unilaterally declare statehood. And what's to stop? What's to stop that? So, you know, Friedman here, I think, is, is opening up a, a Pandora's box that he's hoping he's hoping will uh, will never will never rebound against what he wants and what the current Israeli government wants. But it's setting a, a pretty bad, dangerous precedent for anybody who comes later to do things that Israel may not like. His reading of the problem, again, is, is just very one-sided. It's as with a lot of the cases where the Trump administration at first seems like they're onto something, they stop short of coming full circle on the idea. 
Before we skipped over Friedman's fourth point, because uh, some of the others tied more neatly together about statehood and rights and uh, the status of the two-state solution, Friedman argues that critics of the Trump plan are claiming that the administration's vision violates international law, and in fact, it comports with international law because Jewish settlements in the West Bank don't violate international law, in his view. And he cites the position of Undersecretary of State Eugene Rostow from 1967. Uh, To me, this seems like a dodge, because the question isn't the validity of Jewish settlements in the West Bank, and I don't want to get into it. My personal view is that they don't align with an accurate reading of international law, but the Trump administration didn't create the settlements. They didn't start the settlement movement. This is something that's been going on for decades and decades and decades. The question of, of what's going on under the Trump administration is whether the annexation, unilateral annexation envisioned under the Trump plan, is something that is consistent with international law. Right. This is a pretty obvious bait and switch. But I'd, but I'd also add, you know, along with the bait and switch, so if Friedman wants to argue that settlements don't presumptively violate international law, that's fine. And, and that's, that's, the, that's the current position of the Trump administration. But to say that it is a longstanding American position is incorrect, given that the Trump administration uh, just a few months ago issued new State Department legal guidelines revoking the old ones that had been in place for decades that said that uh, settlements are actually, in the United States' view, inconsistent with international law. So, you know, that part of it is not accurate. And and again, I I, I certainly, uh, <laughs> despite despite having, having, having a law degree, I'm certainly no expert in international law, uh, and you shouldn't rely on me for anything, but I, but I can say with 100% certainty that it is not it is not a long-standing position to claim what Friedman is now claiming. Right. And citing the position that Rostow put out in 1967, he's skipping over that position that you just mentioned, which I believe is issued under the Carter administration, jumping over a whole half a century of American policy and not mentioning something pretty important that happened in between there. So let's move on to Friedman's final point, which I think is a really critically important one, not substantively, because I think as we've laid out, there's a little bit of a dearth of substance in this piece, but because it really is something that is central to the Trump administration's framing of this proposal. I mean, if you look at, for example, some talking points that were circulated by the State Department alongside the release of the Trump plan and were released by Politico, This is something that's sort of fleshed out in there as well. And it's this idea that Israel is making really big concessions under the Trump plan. Friedman uses the phrase enormous concessions in agreeing to negotiate on the basis of the Trump plan. And that is a value add there. Right. And and as you pointed out in in your piece, Evan, uh, it's difficult to identify what these enormous concessions are are because, you know, Israel doesn't seem to be making many concessions at all in the Trump vision, let alone enormous ones. And furthermore, you know, in this in this last point, he makes it seem as if the choice is either declare sovereignty in conformity with the Trump vision or the U.S. withholds aid to Israel. That, that those are those are the two choices facing facing Israel and the United States here. And, and, and that that as well is, is incorrect. You know, as as anybody who's been following this week's news uh, knows, Joe Biden, for instance, uh, is against Israel declaring sovereignty 
in, in the West Bank and, and over settlements, but has also been very clear that he won't withhold aid to Israel. So this isn't an either or, as, as Friedman tries to posit. Right. There are other steps that the United States could take in this area, including, for example, withdrawing any recognition that the Trump administration might issue for Israeli annexation. And that's actually something coming back real quick to the previous point about the validity of settlements. The U.S. has in the past de facto recognized that certain settlements will probably be part of Israel under an agreed upon plan. And you've had things like the Bush Sharon letter that gave an implicit recognition of this reality. But what you've never seen, and what I don't think you would expect to see ever under any other administration except the Trump administration, and now maybe future Republican administrations, if this becomes a precedent within that party, is for an explicit formal recognition, which is what Friedman is seeking here. But this idea of concessions is really out of left field, but it's something that's in the plan by design. And it's actually very clever because the plan calls for a settlement freeze. There's a whole heading in the Peace to Prosperity document entitled Settlement Freeze. And in the past, this is something that has been a source of tension between Israel and the United States, a call for a settlement freeze from the United States. But the settlement freeze envisioned under the Trump plan is asking Israel not to build in places that they have never in 53 years erected settlements in the territories and in places that they are very, very, very unlikely to build in the future. And the way that I would think about this is, you know, if I have a house located on to the left of my house and a house located to the right of my house, and I want to invade and take over the house on the right, under the Trump plan, I promise that I won't take over the house on the left, which I've never expressed any interest in annexing to my home. But from the Trump plan's reading, this is a concession. Even though I'm promising not to take over something that I have never, ever, ever expressed interest in, and I get everything that I want. So the Trump plan allows Israel to pursue its maximal territorial ambitions with minimal to no compromise, but it gets to call it a compromise. And it's the same line of thought of this sovereignty as an amorphous concept that we can call something what it isn't if we so choose to do. And and your piece, Michael, does a good job of laying out this idea of creating a new reality and, and alternate realities that the Trump administration may be working in that are not limited by the pesky interference of facts. Precisely. I think this entire exercise is one big sleight of hand, and I'm sure that it will be persuasive to, to some people. But um, if you line it up with if you line it up with what the the historical record and the facts actually are, uh, it becomes pretty clear that it's 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 a magic trick, um, and really really nothing beyond that. Yeah, and 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 all that I can say here, other than encouraging our listeners to read your piece, Michael, and and the piece that I put up earlier this week, is to read the actual substance of the Trump plan, if you have the time to do it, or at least read even Friedman's op-ed and the talking points that the State Department circulated, and try and discern for yourself what's really in here. And for those who support the Trump plan, I mean, be upfront about what's in this, uh, because I think that this is not something that's really going to fly that far outside the bounds of the administration circles in the United States. And, you know, what matters in the opinion of the rest of the world and and even in other segments in the United States 
is not going to comport very neatly with what the Trump administration has laid out here. So, Michael, thank you for joining this episode of Israel Policy Pod. My pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of Israel Policy Pod. Just a few quick announcements, some opportunities to engage with our work in the week ahead. We're continuing with our Tuesday video briefing series. This upcoming Tuesday, May 12th at the usual time, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, we're going to be joined by Brigadier General Israel Aron and Colonel Shaul Ariely for Annexation 101. They're going to be discussing the security implications of West Bank annexation, and you can register for that program at ipf.li forward slash May 12. That's the numbers 1 and 2. And for our IPF Atid Young Professionals, there's going to be a digital roundtable on Wednesday, May 13th. That program is entitled Israeli-Palestinian Affairs and the Women, Peace, and Security Agenda. If you're in that IPF Atid Young Professionals bracket, 22 to 40, then I encourage you to register for that program as well at ipf.li forward slash WPS 513. Lastly, I just want to say that if you've been following our work in recent weeks, you know that since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic and all of these shelter-in-place orders, Israel Policy Pod has been publishing two episodes a week, up from our normal once-weekly schedule. We've also launched our Tuesday video briefing series, which has been incredibly successful in bringing hundreds of new participants to engage with Israel Policy Forum's work at this really critical time when West Bank annexation is actually on the table in Israel. Our IPF Atid Young Professionals branch is also continuing to convene digital gatherings for our chapters all across the nation. And Michael Koplow's column continues to be a highly sought-after resource for commentary and analysis on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Israeli politics, and U.S.-Israel relations, not to mention all of the other great analysis being produced by our policy advisors and staff. So, we depend on you to keep all of that going. If you're able, I really encourage you to make a contribution in support of Israel Policy Forum's work at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash giving. But most of all, I want to thank you for your continued engagement with all of Israel Policy Forum's work during this difficult time. And we hope to catch you on the next episode of Israel Policy Pod, on our next video briefing, or our next IPF Atid gathering. And be well, be healthy, and we'll see you soon.